Good evening one more time. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll also have the scriptures on the screen. So while we turn there, let me remind us that we are in a series now, I think it's our fourth week, in a series on love and thinking about why 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love is the greatest attribute of a follower of Jesus. And so we wanna examine that together. And as we look specifically at one aspect of love tonight, I've asked my friend Luke to come on up and help me. So y'all welcome Luke with me. He's gonna come on up. All right, bud, that's your spot right there. We're gonna play a little game called Simon Says. How many of you played Simon Says before? Yes, absolutely. Luke, do you remember how Simon Says works? Yes, all right, fantastic. So if I were to say raise your right hand, would you do it? Well, ah, no, that's exactly right. All right, so let's get started. Simon says, raise your right hand. Simon says, raise your left hand. You can keep that right hand up, too. Simon says, put your right hand down. There you go. Put your right hand up. Lift your right foot up. Good job. You caught yourself. Simon says, lift your right foot up. There you go. Simon says, put your right foot down. Simon says, put both hands above your head. Simon says, jump up and down. Simon says, stop jumping up and down, good job. All right, Simon says, Simon says, touch your toes and your eye at the same time with your right hand. (laughs) It's a good try, it's a good try. How about this one? Simon says, jump up and down and stay completely still at the same time. You don't know what to do, do you? It's impossible to obey. All right, that illustrates our point. Everyone give Luke a big round of applause. Thank you, buddy. You can go sit down. I should have said if you're at home on Sunday morning, kids, you should be playing that with us. So here's the thing. Simon says it's a lot of fun until somebody gives you a command that's impossible to obey, right? When someone says jump up and down and stand completely still at the same time, you're just stumped. And as we come in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 today to look at the command that God is gonna give us about love or the, the statement that he's gonna make about love, what we're gonna find is he's gonna say there are two things that are incompatible with one another, two things that can't be done at the same time, and those two things are envy and love. So the, the big idea for us tonight is this, is if we wanna learn how to love one another, we're gonna have to learn how to not have envy in our hearts towards one another because you can't be envious of someone and truly love them at the same time. Everybody follow me? You cannot love someone and be envious of them at the same time is what Paul is gonna teach us tonight. Now let's remember our context here with the Corinthians. We have seen that they were really uh, puffed up, proud, right? That they had an understanding, they thought of what maturity was in Christ, what spiritual maturity looked like. And they would argue that spiritual maturity looked a lot like having a lot of knowledge. They would argue that spiritual maturity looked a lot like having these really profound spiritual experiences or perhaps that spiritual maturity even looked like this great thing like sacrificial service. And all those things are good, Paul says, but we wanna remind ourselves each week in this series that he says none of those are actually spiritual maturity because you can do all those things and still be spiritually an infant. But he says if you're gonna be spiritually mature, what that really looks like is being full of love for one another in the church and for your neighbor. Now in particular, as we come together tonight, can I just tell you, throughout the, throughout the course of this series, my hope is that you know, love begins in the household of God. So as we talk about, among believers, love begins in the household of God. And what that means is 
that really what we're, what we're trying to be instructed in throughout the course of the summer is what does it look like to love each other really well? What does it look like to be a church? I, I hope that we can have a little bit of creative imagination to ask ourselves the question, I'm a part of West Shore Free Church. What does it mean for West Shore Free Church to become the kind of church that is marked by love? You, you with me? What does it look like for that to happen? There is so often so little love in our world uh, that a church that truly, deeply engaged in what the scriptures command us to, what the scriptures call us to in terms of love, not some misdiagnosed secular approach to love, not some desire-driven, you know, humanistic version of what love is, but really what God's word calls love, that as we learn that, we will stand apart and be unique and I think find great joy in our hearts uh, and great joy in our fellowship with one another. So the proposition tonight is simply this, we can't love someone and envy them at the same time and we wanna grow in love because love is what the mark of maturity is. You are full of maturity when you're full of love. That's Paul's argument. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's read again. We'll just read them each week. Kind of we'll add verses as we go because we're taking it phrase by phrase. But let's start at the beginning in verse one and let's read then through the part of verse four that talks about envy. So here we go. Verse one. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy. Love does not envy. And I'm gonna say there, or boast, which we'll talk about next week in our time together. But those two are paired together, and so I want us to see that one tonight. Love does not envy or boast. So here's what, here's kind of a roadmap for you. First, what I wanna do is talk about the dangers of envy. I want you to understand why envy is dangerous. That might be readily obvious, but there also might be some things in this text for us that we might not see that Paul is pointing out for us about why envy is particularly dangerous. If you think about all the things that he could say, and he is going to say love is not, why does envy come first? Why is it the thing that he seems to point out first? After saying love is patient and kind, and we talked about last week how those are really grouped unto themselves. They are broadly defining what God's love is like, and now we're turning to a description of what, what love is not like. And among the things that he's gonna tell us love is not like, the very first thing that he wants us to see is that love doesn't envy. So first, I want you to see the dangers of envy and in that, understand what it means to envy. So fair enough, that's what we're gonna do first. What is it? What does it look like? Let's be really practical about that. And why is it so dangerous? And then the second thing I want us to do is ask what's the remedy for envy? What is it that roots envy out of our hearts? And perhaps tonight, I would expect that the Spirit of God might reveal to you, if you would be so open to him, might reveal to you places where you're prone to envy. I uh, asked my life group this week as I was preparing, I said, hey, tell me some areas where you think we might be prone to envy, just as people. I didn't ask them to out themselves specifically, but I just said, tell me some areas where you think people in general might be prone to envy. And what was you know, very telling about it is the list was a mile long. I mean, it's like six people responded and there must have been 45. You know, it could be this, it could be that, it could be this. Do you know what I took from that? Is we are capable of envying over anything. I mean, we are capable of being envious over anything. So perhaps tonight God might break up some ground in your heart and show you that there's some places where 
envy might be taking root in subtle ways or in specific ways. And one of the things I wanna show you is that it can be very subtle that envy can take root in our hearts. And, and so we have to be diligent and vigilant about that. So we're gonna ask what's the remedy for that. And then lastly, I just wanna see if we can't have a picture in our mind of what, it, what a church that was full of love and free of envy would look like what it might look like for us to be that kind of church. So that's our roadmap. That's the kind of road we're gonna go on. So let's, let's define envy first as we talk about the dangers of envy. The first thing that we need to understand is that envy really, here's my layman's definition of it. It's, it's resenting someone because of what God has given them and not us. It's resenting someone because of what God has given them and not us. And that could take the form of, I, I like to think in these two categories, possessions or position. Possessions or position. Now by possessions, I could mean material things, like they have a wonderful home and maybe, maybe I, I wish I had a home like theirs. I'm envious of their home, that's a material possession. But I could also mean uh, character traits that they possess or skill sets that they possess. They're, they're attractive and I feel less attractive. They're intelligent and you know, exceedingly intelligent, I, I feel less intelligent and therefore I'm envious of that. You get what I'm saying? Could be any of those kinds of possessions, but it could also be position. It could be something they've worked hard to aspire to. Maybe they, they've achieved a certain prominence in their career and you're in that same field and when you see their prominence, you think, man, how, how did they get ahead of me? I, I would like to be where they are. So it could be any of those kind of categories when we think about what envy is, but just at a very basic level, Essentially, envy is resenting someone because of what God has given them and not you. Now, in particular, I wanna make a distinction here. We're really thinking about envy within and among the people of God. Now, if we wanna think about what does it look like to envy perhaps someone that is not a brother or sister in Christ, which I'm not really gonna to touch on tonight, we, we'd wanna to go to Psalm 73, where the psalmist spends his time going, I was envious of the wicked, of someone who was not a worshiper or a follower of God, I was envious of them, and how the psalmist resolves that envy in his heart is ultimately by entering the presence of God and saying, I see that the end result of unrighteousness, the end result of not walking with God is bad. And ultimately, I know that no matter how prominent they may seem now, that prominence will not last because ultimately, God will command and control all things and bring them in a line with what he desires. So if we're dealing with envy, perhaps, of someone outside the family of God that we see doing things that we recognize don't honor God, that's a different type of thing than what we're addressing tonight. Does that make sense? We'll make sure we're clear about that. But you can spend some time in Psalm 73 this week. That would be a great demonstration. Perhaps there's someone in your place of work that you have found yourself a little envious of. Uh, and, and that might more directly address them. But first, we have to think about what does it look like when we're envious of one another and what God has given to one another. Now, of course, Paul is addressing this with the Corinthians because they seem to be envious of the gifts that that each other have, right? Some have this gift and some have that gift and perhaps those with this gift want that gift from God and wish they were being used in this way by God and so there's this envy and Paul's addressing that. That's at least part of the reason why it's one of the first things that he says. Now, I saw this as I was doing a little bit of research this week. There was an article in The Guardian, again, completely secular uh, London newspaper and the writer of the article was so interesting, was making the point that we are more susceptible to envy than ever before, and I agreed with the, the woman who was writing this, because of the fact that we now have social media. And we are more prone to envy because we have more things to compare ourselves to. And the things we're comparing ourselves to are Photoshopped lives. 
They are not reality. They are everybody's best version of themselves put on a screen in front of us for consumption, for voyeuristic consumption, so that we might look at it and go, wow, what a life they live. And it just makes it harder. If it wasn't hard enough to be envious, the scriptures clearly paint a picture that it's hard not to be envious. We're prone to it in our fallen nature. Would you agree with that? We're prone to it, and yet now we've subjected ourselves, and, and there's good things that come from social media, but at least one of the bad things that comes from it is that we are so much more prone to envy. Here's what the, the article said. This is a clinical psychologist, Rachel Andrew, and she says this. She, she says, I am seeing more and more envy in my consulting room from people who can't achieve the lifestyle they want, but which see others have. Our use of platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, she says, amplifies this deeply disturbing psychological discord. I think, this is her, I think what social media has done is make everyone accessible for comparison. So, you know, if you're walking in the night, you're thinking, you know, I don't think envy is that prevalent a thing. It seems like maybe an antiquated concept. Can I just tell you, it is not antiquated. We live in, a, we live in, a, in an age of envy, if I could even you know, classify it that way, because we're so used to having access to everybody else's lives, and it's not their real lives, but it's the life they want us to see. And then we think to ourselves, why don't I have that? I don't have this. Their family looks so happy. My, my family fights all the time. They seem so, you know, that vacation that they took, I can't go on that kind of vacation. What a bummer, you know? I mean, so you with me? Does that make sense that there's just this, constant comparison. We're gonna come back to that at the end of the sermon. All right, so let's, let me point out three particular dangers related to envy. The first one is this, is that when I envy, I'm putting myself in God's place. When I envy, I'm putting myself in God's place. Now let me explain what I mean by that. In Exodus chapter 20, verse five, and in numerous other places in the Old Testament, God says that he's a jealous God. Are you all familiar with this? God says, I am a jealous God. And in that context, in Exodus chapter 20, what he's saying is this is part of the 10 commandments. And he's saying, don't worship other gods and don't make images, don't make idols uh, to other gods. And the reason he says not to do that is because I am a jealous God. In other words, what he's saying is, I, am, I want your worship and I want you to worship me alone. And I want no other God to get your worship. And so it's interesting to think, well, we're being told not to envy that my love is supposed to be like God's love. And if my love is gonna be like God's love, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I'm told not to envy, and yet God says that his love is a jealous love. It is an envious love. Now those two terms are not exactly interchangeable, but they're close enough. The concepts are close enough. So when he's saying it, here's what I want you to see. That he is the only one for whom it's right to say, I have a jealous love. Because he is the only being in all existence that is completely self-sufficient. In other words, he needs nothing from anyone for his existence to continue to go forward. He needs nothing from you. He needs nothing from me. He is completely sufficient on his own. And not only that, he's the only being that is perfectly righteous. Therefore, for God to say, all created things, all things I have created should worship me is not only right because he's the only truly righteous and holy being, it's also what's best for those who have, he, whom he has created. Do you, do you agree with that? It's right for him to say, I'm jealous for your worship. And it's good for us that he says it. And no other being can say that. So when my love is full of jealousy, when my love is full of envy, rather than being free from it, what I'm really doing is claiming a right that only God has. That's what I want you to see. When I become envious of what someone else has or what I want from them, what I'm doing in a subtle sense is I'm taking God's place, which is probably the ultimate danger of any 
sin in our life because that's the root of all of our sin is Adam and Eve and we've inherited their sin and their predisposition to sin. So we've inherited their guilt and not only that, we've inherited their predisposition towards sin. What was, what was it that put them out of the garden? What was it that put them in rebellion to God? It's that they wanted his position. They wanted his place. They didn't want to submit to him, but they wanted to rule over themselves. And so there's that old garden sin come back again upon us. Now, that's the first danger. And I know that's a little bit kind of broad and theological, but we need to see that because ultimately we're putting ourselves in God's place and that has roots all the way back to original sin, the beginning of the scriptures and the story of human, humanity. Now, the second danger is this. The second danger is that envy can sneak up on you. And I really want you to get this, church, because so you might be here tonight and thinking to yourself, I, I, don't really, I don't think I'm envious of anybody. I, I don't think I really have that problem. I pray that's true. I hope that God is sanctifying you in such a way that there's no envy in your heart towards anyone. But I want you to be aware that one of the dangers of envy is that it has the ability to sneak up on you. Now, here's where I draw that from, okay? So the word for envy in this text, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse four, is a fun word. It's the word zelao. Everyone say zelao. Now, that sounds a lot like zealous, doesn't it? That's because that's the root word for the word zealous. Now, to be zealous about something is to be what? It's to be passionate, deeply desirous for that thing. Now, here's the really interesting point. At the end of chapter 12 and at the beginning of chapter 14, Paul uses that same word in a positive sense. So he says, I want you, in, at the end of chapter 12, to be deeply desirous to use the gifts God has given you. Desire those gifts and desire to use those gifts. And he says the same thing again in chapter 14. So if he can use that word, zelao, be zealous, be desirous, be passionate to have these good things, then what he's saying is this is a good thing, and then the reason he uses this word, which by the way, is not the primary word for envy in the scriptures, and we're gonna get to that in a minute because there's another word he could have chosen, and understanding what that word means will help us understand another danger of envy, but he could have chosen that word, and he doesn't. He chooses this word, not just because it's a nice, like, oh, I used it in chapter 12, and I used it in chapter 14, so I'll use it here, but rather because he's making a point. He's saying, I want you to understand that the same zeal, the same desire, the same passion, which can produce such good things, like the use of your gifts for the building up of others in Christ. That's what he's talking about in chapter 12 and 14. That same zealousness can be twisted and turned in a wrong direction. It can be turned in a direction that we would call envy. And that's why that word is translated there, envy, or perhaps in some of your scriptures, it is translated jealous. Does anybody have a scripture text that's it's translated jealous? So that's what he's getting at there. This means envy is a good desire turned in the wrong direction. And what turns it in the wrong direction ultimately ultimately is pride. Now I said a minute ago that he's pairing He's pairing, and I wanna get too into love doesn't boast because we're gonna hear about that next week, but I want you to see that, that Paul is helping us by pairing those two things together. In the same way that he paired patience and kindness, in this text now, he is pairing together these two ideas, envy and boasting, essentially trying to communicate to us. Envy is what you feel because of pride when you think you deserve something but don't get it. And boasting is what you do or feel. It's how you act when you think you deserve something and you get it. So it's circumstantial. If I get the thing, then I'm boastful because I know that I deserved it. And therefore I have it and I'm gonna tell everybody that I have it because of my effort, my works, my merit, right? That's boasting. 
Envy is the opposite, but they're both twin products of pride. Do you see it? They're twin products of pride, and that's why he's pairing them together here. So that's why we say, when we see this word for zeal or desire, that the message that Paul is trying to communicate to us is that it's so sneaky, this thing called envy, that it can, take, it can stem from a very good thing, which it twists and turns bad. So that you might be thinking, I have a good desire to grow in my place of work and to achieve uh, more influence. That's not bad. That's not wrong, but it can so subtly and so quickly, that very good thing, become envy when someone just outsteps you just a little bit, when someone just, just advances just a little bit beyond you, and then the next thing you know, you find this, this resentment growing in your heart, saying that it really should have been me and not them, and you don't even recognize it at first because it's a good thing that got turned just slightly, just ever so slightly, and turned you in a trajectory, turned you in a direction before you even knew it, that was leading you towards envy. Are you with me? Does it make sense? So guard yourselves, Christian. Guard yourselves. Ask God to examine your hearts because envy is subtle and it's tricky. All right? Now, it can sneak up on you. That's one of its great dangers. Danger number three, right? So we said it, it, when we envy, we're putting ourselves in the place of God who alone is allowed to have jealous love and truly jealous love. And then secondarily, it's, subtle and sneaky and it sneaks up on us before we even know it. And then the last danger is that envy, envy leads to worse things than we think. It's dangerous because it leads to worse things than we think. And friends, this is another one that I really want you to understand. So I said there's another word for envy that can be used and that word is, is kind of funny to say but it's thanos. You can try it if you want. Thanos, right? So not Thanos, not Avengers, right? Just thanos, right? And what that word means is different than what we saw Paul use earlier. Most of the times in the scriptures, when you come to the, to the word envy or jealousy and you're reading in your English translation, the Greek word there is that word thanos. And it literally means to destroy or corrupt. To destroy or corrupt. In other words, what the scriptures most of the time when they talk about envy are communicating to us is that envy destroys it absolutely destructs the one at whom it's directed. And by the way, it destroys the one in whom it's present too. Do you know that? It destroys both the one it's aimed at and it destroys the one in whom it exists. Here's where we see it. James chapter four, verse one and two. I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. Here's what James chapter four, verses one through two says. Using that word, thanos, it says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? That's his question. And he says, is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You see that? You desire and do not have, so you murder. Now, listen, can I tell you, friends, James is not literally saying that, that someone murdered someone physically. Do you understand that? He's not saying to this group of people to whom he's writing, one of you literally murdered someone else because you were envious of them, because you had these you have this jealousy in you, this desire in you. He's really leaning back into what Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter five. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says to us, again, Matthew chapter five, he says, you've heard it said don't murder or you're gonna, you're gonna be in danger of judgment. But I, I tell you, if you're angry, if you're just angry with your brother, if you're angry with your sister, you've essentially murdered them. You are in danger of judgment. You've heard it said don't commit adultery. But I'm telling you, if you look at someone with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. 
Jesus in that Sermon on the Mount is trapping us under the weight of sin so that all of us would say, oh, I've done that. I have done that. I maybe haven't physically done it, but I've done it. I've done it in my heart. I've done it in my mind. I need a savior. I need someone to intervene for me because I am clearly not righteous on my own. And it's much the same thing here that James is saying and that Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when he is saying, you, you know, and James is saying, you've murdered someone by being full of this desire, full of this thanos, this envy, this jealousy. Paul is getting at the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and, and telling us this. I heard a story uh, about the Revolutionary War and Benedict Arnold. So we know Benedict Arnold, why? Because he's the great, you know, he's considered the, the sort of preeminent traitor uh, in, our, in our country's history, right? And he betrayed the revolutionary cause and went over to the British side. But we may not know the background of, uh, of Benedict Arnold. And forgive me, I'm not, I, I don't know every piece of the history, so some of you may know more than I. But from what I've read, here's the interesting story. He served under General Horatio Gates. And, and General Gates in the Revolutionary War was notoriously famous for sort of being really conservative. And Benedict Arnold won multiple battles, including the Battle of Saratoga, where his horse, he was gravely wounded because his horse fell over on him and his leg was shattered in the battle. But he is widely given credit for some major victories that would have been lost. And then he wanted to press those advantages and say, look, we've got them on the run. Let's keep moving uh, in our war efforts here. And General Gates, each time, two different times, said, no, 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 we're gonna pull back and historians have commented that they think that one of the reasons General Gates did this is not just because he wasn't confident that they could win the next battle or press the advantage further, but because he knew he wouldn't get credit. Arnold would. And so rather than let Benedict Arnold get credit for the victories, General Gates said, no, no, we're not gonna go forward. We're gonna stay back. Well, what is that? That's envy, right? That's envy. And so when we talk about envy being more destructive than we realize, do you know that part of the reason, and there's, there's historians vary on the reasons for uh, Benedict Arnold's treasonous acts, but at least part of them are attributed to that kind of treatment of those higher over him. So the envy in General Gates beget envy in Benedict Arnold who thought he deserved more and wanted more and ultimately betrays his own country. So we see, we, do you see how envy can snowball? Do you see how it can become more destructive than we would perhaps ever realize? And that's what we need to understand. When James says in James chapter four, verse two, you desire and you don't get, and you're thinking, okay, well, is that really that big a deal? And then he says, so you murder. What he's trying to show us is the end result of all envy is deeply destructive. Now you may not take, it may result in you taking action against someone to undermine them in some way. It may result in a word of gossip spoken about that person so that someone would think a little bit less of them. It may result in some kind of action by which you try and kind of cut them just slightly, but it may not result in any of those things. It may remain in your heart and in your mind, but ultimately do you see the destruction that is caused in a church when people, even if they don't act upon their envy, feel envy towards one another. Friends, can I argue a church cannot function or thrive where envy is existing. It has to be rooted out or it will destroy the church. It may start between two members, but it will grow until it destroys the body because we are one body. Do you know that? We are one body. What happens between you and another member of this church affects everybody. 
What happens between you and every member of this, any other member of this church affects everybody. Whether we know it occurred or not, it affects who we are and what we are because we are one body. Can I please implore you to love each other? Be gentle with one another. Be patient when you're frustrated. Ask questions, don't make accusations. Yes? Especially in this season. This is a season of accusation. I see it time and time and time again. You did this, you thought that. I, I, I am assuming your motive was this. I'm assuming your motive was that. And we presume to know, and we don't know. Far better to ask questions in love than to make accusations in anger. I would urge you and implore you to do that with one another in this time. So important. Now, those are the reasons why it's destructive. We could go on, I mean, we could say many more things, but that's what I want you to see there. Now, let me give you the remedy for envy. Now, there's one ultimate remedy, and then there's some practical ways that we grow in that. In that. So the thing that, that is first for us to see is that the ultimate remedy for all envy is trusting God. It's trusting that he knows how to give you what he wants you to have. Yes, do you believe that? He knows how to give you what he wants you to have. If he wants you to ascend to a certain position in your workplace, he knows how to bring you there. He doesn't need you. Work hard, please work hard. But he does not need you to backstab or to envy or to manipulate your way there. He knows how to, he knows how to bring you there. If, he, if you're not married and you desire to be married and you're envious of your brothers and sisters who are married, perhaps, or maybe just dating. You think, oh, they're dating the person I wish I was dating, someone like that. Envy will not get you there. The Lord knows how to bring you all that he desires to bring into your life. That's the ultimate remedy for all envy is trusting that God knows how to bring into your life the things that he desires you to have. Now, I know that at times you think, how much longer do I have to wait? How, one of the great themes of my life has been desiring things and God saying, that's, that's great. Now you're gonna wait. I say, okay. And it's so, can I tell you, friends, it's never fun, but it's always good. It is never fun, but it's always good. My desire for him grows. My trust in him grows. My sense of I need you. You're, you're the one I need. Every time there's been a desire in my heart for something, and I feel even that God planted it there, the goodness of waiting for the fulfillment of that desire is that every time it reminds me, I think this is from you, even if you don't bring it, ever, I am reminded that you're what I need. You're what I need. You're what I need. And how good it is to grow in that. And in God's faithfulness, so many times, not every time, but so many times, the desire that was planted there by him proves to be from him. And by the way, one of the ways that you grow certain that that desire actually is from him and not just your own is that as you wait and are faithful and don't allow yourself to grow in envy, as you wait and are faithful, and then he brings it. Do you know the joy of when you receive it? You go, oh, I didn't manipulate my way into this. I didn't, I didn't sort of push and cast aside people to get to this. The Lord brought that about. And you're so confident that the Lord brought it about and that, that desire that you felt was fulfilled because it was from him and not just yourself. It's like the, it's like the proof that, it, that that desire truly was from him. Because have you ever struggled to wonder if this desire that I have in my heart right now is from him or if it's just me? You struggle with that? Yes, can I please confess I have struggled with that? And you may not be human if you haven't struggled with that. Right, you may be a different species altogether. Congratulations to you, okay? But we all wrestle with that, and as we wrestle with that, it's so good. It's, it's never easy, it's always good. I, I want you to remember that. Now, 
So that's the remedy. Now there's some really great ways that we can do that and there's some texts that I just wanna point you to quickly tonight that speak about envy and how we put it to death so that we grow in trust of God, how practically we can grow trust of God. The first is this, in 1 Corinthians 12, 31 and 14, verse one, the two things that I pointed you to where he uses that word deeply desire. The first way to practically begin to trust God when it relates to envy is to know the gifts he's given you and use them. Know the gifts he's given you and use them. In other words, if you're using the gifts that God has given you, you don't have a lot of time to be envious of the gifts he's given somebody else. There's not a lot of time to worry about what someone else got if you're busily, diligently using what God has given you. And that's really the implication, <coughs> excuse me, of chapter, the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 14. When he's saying, I want you to be zealous, I want you to desire the gifts of the Spirit. And I want you to be desirous of using them. And by putting those around this idea of love doesn't envy, he's really implying to us, do you know one of the strategies for not being envious so that you can be full of love and not full of envy? Because those two things can't coexist. You know one of the strategies? Just use the gifts I've already given you. Just use them. Serve one another. If, if you have the gift of hospitality, use it. If you have the gift of service, use it. If you have the gift of teaching, use it. Whatever God has given you, if he's granted you a wonderful home, use it. If he's granted you a marriage, use it for his kingdom. Use whatever he's given you, whatever gifts in his kindness he's put in your life, use them. And don't spend your time worrying what somebody else has. Doesn't this feel like I'm, does it feel like I'm saying something that if you have kids, you've said to your kids like 5,000 times? Don't worry that their glass is this much more full of milk than your glass, right? If I could count the number of times in my family where it's been like, but they got just this much more ice cream than I got. I'm like, buddy, don't worry, but just, you got a huge helping of ice cream. Enjoy. Yep, I have a friend in ministry. Uh, he actually was my boss at one point. <laughs> he has three boys, and he said, we used to, they, our, our boys loved milk, and every night at dinner, they'd have a glass of milk, and every night at dinner, we'd give them three different amounts of milk on purpose. Someone got a small amount, someone got a medium amount, someone got a large amount, and every time, every time, one of them would say, that's not fair, I got the small amount, and we'd say, exactly, life isn't fair, drink your milk. But one of the points, one of the points that he was trying to make was like, don't worry about what somebody else got. Be glad with what God has given you, right? So I don't know if you wanna try the milk thing, but it was an interesting concept nonetheless, right? So the first is know the gifts he's given you and use them. The second way, the second way that we do it, uh, put it to death, put envy to death, is keep asking whether Jesus is getting glory. Keep asking this question over and over. Whenever you encounter a circumstance where you're prone to you know, be envious of someone else and what God has given them, just ask, is God getting glory by giving that to them? Paul demonstrates this for us in Philippians chapter one, verses 15 through 18. Listen to what he says. Now this is someone who's envious of him, but listen to what he says. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, no, think about how backwards that is. There is somebody that Paul is saying to the Philippians, Paul's in jail at this moment, and he's saying, there are people out there that think I'm gonna talk about Jesus and tell people about his death on the cross and his resurrection so that, so that I get more sort of acclaim than Paul, so that, I'm, so that they see me as better even than Paul. So that's an interesting motive, to say the least, right? And then Paul says this, so some do it out of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. 
So the latter, do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, proclaim, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now get this, look at verse 18. <laughs> what then? Like, that's the next one. So what, what should I, how should I feel about that? What should I do about that? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now listen, Paul's not saying that those motives are good motives, and he's not saying that God, you know, he wouldn't ask God to correct that and, and, and not allow that kind of falseness to come into ministry, but at the very least what he's saying is, look, my eyes are on the most important thing, and the most important thing is that Christ is proclaimed. The most important thing is that Christ is proclaimed. And if God is gonna use them <coughs> to proclaim Christ, then I say amen to that. And I say I'm glad for that. Do you see what Paul's saying? They may be envious of me, but I will, I'm not envious of them. Even though I'm in prison and they're not, he could say I'm, I'm kind of envious that they're free. Even with their bad motives, they're free and I'm, I'm here in jail. And he says, no, I'm not gonna be envious of them because my primary agenda is not my freedom, it's not my acclaim, it's not my position, it's just that Jesus is getting credit. It's just that Jesus is being made famous. And friends, can I tell you what a great remedy that is for us if we become people who ask ourselves the question, and I don't mean just make this a mental concept, I mean literally when you're tempted to feel envious that somebody has something that you do not, and you sense perhaps a little resentment growing in your heart, just ask the question, is, is Jesus getting glory? And again, we're talking about within the household of faith now, we're not talking about outside the household of faith. We're talking about within the body now. Just ask, is Jesus getting glorified? Then amen, and focus on that. Can we focus on that? Oh, that he would get glory. Keep the first thing, the first thing, and what good things will come from that. All right, last one, last one. Just tell God what you want and need. Tell God what you want and need. Going back to that James passage, James chapter four, verses two and three. Here's what it says. Let me, let me turn over to it. So in James, this is just really, I, I find this interesting. So in James chapter four, verse two, he says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. We read that already. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And then what does he say? You do not have because you do not ask. Now that is not what I would have said there. I would not have said, you're quarreling and backbiting and you're destroying one another and you're, you're like literally murdering one another in a, in a very real spiritual sense. That's what's happening. My answer to that question would not, my answer to that situation, I don't think pastorally would have been, you know, if you would just ask God, he'd give you what you, what you need, what you want. It wouldn't be to tell them to ask so that they would get the thing. I'd be like, you're being a bunch of jerks and God's gonna punish you. So you need to cut it out. That's not what he says. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. Now, the very next verse, friends, because we need to make sure we get the full context, there's you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, he's not saying there, as long as you have good motives, whatever you ask for, God's gonna give you. No, what he's saying is, learn to go to God with your wants and your needs. And as you go to him, what you'll find is that he will shape your motives, he will shape your desires, so that what happens in that prayer is that, is that you begin to trust him. More prayer equals more trust. And you trust that if he gives you the thing that you ask him for as you express your desires to him, when you bring it and he gives it, you go, oh, good. Thank you, Lord. And you grow in trust. And if he doesn't give it to you, you've gone to him. You've asked him. That's why I think Paul, uh, sorry, um, 
James, is saying there, you don't have because you don't ask. And, and when you ask, you ask with wrong motives. So he's saying just go before the Lord. He will bring your motives where he needs to bring them. He'll, he'll reveal to you what's really going on, and then you'll learn to grow in trust. So those are the three remedies that help us. Well, the remedy is grow in trust, right? You with me? Grow in trust of God. How can we do that? Take our wants and needs to him. Use the gifts that he's already given us. Don't worry about how much milk is in the other kid's glass. Drink the milk you've got, right? And then thirdly, not only that, but um, keep asking whether Jesus is getting glory. Keep your eyes on that. Now, just before we go to worship, again, can I just, can I just paint a picture for you? Just, just think about what a church, because again, love and envy can't coexist. If we envy one another, we can't love each other. That's what Paul's telling us. Just think about what it would look like in a church where envy was just not there, where envy was gone and love was full. It would be a church where God was powerfully at work because no one would care who got the credit. Think about how powerfully God would be at work to save the lost, to bring his word forth into our hearts because no one would care who got the credit. No one would care who did the work. All that anyone would care about is like, let Jesus get glory. Let Jesus get honor. There'd be no gossiping. There'd be no, there'd, just, there'd be no resentment towards one another. There would, just be, there would just be so much love. Now, it would also be a church where everyone would know that their gifts are needed. Everyone would know that their gifts are needed. And friends, let me just, this could just be an invitation to you. If, you are, if you're just kind of sitting on the bench here at the church, you know, you're coming and we're so glad that you're coming, but, but maybe you're not using the gifts that you have. Maybe you don't even know what they are yet. Man, can I invite you to come off the bench? Just come off the bench. Your gifts are needed here. Not needed in the sense that God really needs any of us, but needed in the sense that like, without all of us exercising our gifts, we're incomplete. You know, there's gifts of teaching and there's gifts of exhortation, there's gifts of mercy and gifts of hospitality and helps and musically inclined gifts. We just... We need everybody to be using their gifts. That's, man, when there's no envy, it's a church where everybody goes, oh, my gifts are needed because they're not worried about somebody else's gifts and envying those. They're going, God gave me these and those are needed. And the last thing, can I tell you, we would be overflowing with joy because do you know what steals joy? Comparison. Comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the absolute thief of joy. Going back to the point we made about social media, you know, like, the reason you feel worse when you get off of a Facebook session, not better, is quite often because you just found yourself filling your heart with comparison of others. And all that does is steal joy every time. I had a good friend tell me that in college and I've never forgot it. Comparison is the thief of joy. And friends, just imagine, imagine if there was no comparison among us, no envy among us, no building resentment among us, how overflowing with joy we would be. That would impact our worship, it would impact our ability to grow in sanctification, it would impact everything we did with one another because we'd be overjoyed to see one another because there'd never be this moment of like, ah, you know, we kind of have this thing between me and them because I kind of wish that I had this or they have this or they have more money than I have and da, da, da. There would be none of that. There would only be this just overwhelming sense of joy and contentment among God's people to be together and so glad you have that gift. I don't have it, I'm glad you got it because we need it and if, if nobody had it, we'd be in real trouble. I'm so glad you've got that. Man, 
So just, can you see that? I, I need you to see that with me. Like, see it in your mind with me. That's where God wants to take us. So full of love for one another that envy is put to death. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that we can come, and your word is so rich, it's so full, and we've received from it tonight. I pray, Lord, take now that word for those who are receiving it on Sunday morning in their homes, those who are receiving it right now, sitting here tonight, that, that what would happen is it would, it would just deeply root itself in us, and if there's any explanation I've made of your word that is, that is insufficient or unhelpful, just let that just kind of move right out of our hearts and minds, but anything that is now helpful, Holy Spirit, take it and root it in us so that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of it in obedience to your command to us. Not just hearers, but doers, so that we would leave this place more fully equipped and ready because of your living word to deal with the envy that we might find in our hearts. So you are merciful to show it to us. We pray that you would. And then would you, in your kindness, lead us towards repentance so that we might walk in love. We wanna offer you praise now. Jesus, even as we come to the end of our time together, we just wanna offer you praise before we leave this place. So receive it now. You are good. And we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand? Let's sing together before we go.